You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Genesis chapter 28, verses 1 through 5, Jacob sent away. Jacob had stolen his elder brother's blessing by deceit, instigated and aided by his mother, Rebekah. Esau was furious and planned to kill Jacob as soon as their father Isaac died. Rebekah heard about his plans and worried for his safety. So now she complains to her husband about Esau's two Hittite wives. She is overly dramatic and says if Jacob also chooses a wife like these, her life wouldn't be worth living. It's time Jacob got himself a wife. So Isaac is convinced and calls Jacob to his side and commands him. Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there, from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And this was exactly where Rebekah wanted him to go. It was far enough away that he'd be safe. Just like Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was sent for from among their relatives, so they desired the same for Jacob. It mattered to them that he marry within their family and faith, something Esau had failed to do. Then Isaac again blesses Jacob, knowingly this time. He seems to finally understand and accept that it was God's plan that both the blessing and birthright should go to Jacob, and this new blessing reflects that by mentioning the three aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, land, descendants, and blessing. The land of Canaan was a type of heaven. He says, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. The reason for blessing is so that he can take possession of the land. Isaac uses the name God Almighty, or El Shaddai, to bless Jacob. This is the name God called himself at this point in redemptive history to the patriarchs. It would change in Exodus 3.14. Also in Exodus 6.2 and 3 it says, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. So Isaac and Rebekah sent him away to her relatives in Paddan Aram in Syria. They will never see each other again. Only Jacob and Esau will meet twice, the last time at their father's funeral. Verses 6 to 9, Esau's rebellious marriage. Esau hears that his father had blessed Jacob again on purpose and then had sent him to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there after charging him not to marry a Canaanite woman. They hadn't called Esau to come to Jacob's send-off because of their estrangement. He heard that Jacob obeyed his parents and went to do as they asked. Jacob's favor of his parents and his, and his, dis- his obedience to them irked Esau. Then we're told Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebaioth and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, 
in addition to the wives he already had. So because he knew it would upset his parents, he went out of his way to find his uncle Ishmael and marry one of his daughters, in addition to the two wives he already had. So in addition to that reason, he and Ishmael were both archers, so they had that in common. By marrying back into the family of Abraham, he may have been trying to get back into favor with his father by showing an obedience similar to his brother's. But Isaac was not going to change his will. I think the main reason is rebellion, because we're clearly told he only added another pagan wife specifically to annoy his parents. We often don't think we're so bad if we compare ourselves only to other people. Esau probably thought that in spite of his marriages, he was still a better person than his scheming brother. Verses 10 through 27, Jacob's Ladder. Jacob sets out on his way from Beersheba to Haran, where his uncle Laban lives. The idea is to get a wife for his parents. Uh, was his parents' idea, not his. He obeyed, but mostly he was running for his life to escape the consequences of his deceit. While he now has the rights of the firstborn, so he'd inherit all that Isaac had, he didn't take any of those flocks and herds with him. Perhaps Esau got to keep them after all. But no matter, God would bless Jacob abundantly in spite of it. And perhaps his hardship was to correct him for his deceit. After traveling about 50 miles north, he stops to sleep. He's a hardy soul because he uses a stone as a pillow and sleeps under the stars. It's mentioned matter-of-factly, which meant it probably wasn't a big deal for him. From verses 20 and 21, we see he is in danger of not having the basic necessities and he is already missing his family. But God brings comfort to him at a time when he's been stripped of all natural comforts and comforters. He has a dream in which he saw a stairway or ladder resting down on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. The Lord stood above it and Jacob was on the ground. God assures them that although he is forced to leave Canaan, it doesn't negate God's promises to him. God repeats the covenant to him, as he had to Abraham and Isaac. He repeats the three aspects of the covenant, land, descendants, and blessing, including the gospel promise, which is worldwide in its scope. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. He also promises his presence will go with Jacob, and his assurance that he will fulfill his word. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob wakes up, he realizes the significance of the place since God has visited him. He says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Jacob was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. 
Then he takes the stone he had used as a pillow and sets it up as a pillar and pours oil on top of it. He renames the city of Luz, Bethel, which means house of God. It was normal to change the place uh, of an, uh, the name of a place of religious significance. Many Christian churches and organizations have taken this name to themselves because it suggests the presence of God. While Jacob's faith is still weak at this point, he does demonstrate a belief, or at least a hope, that God will do as he promised, to watch over him on his journey, provide food and clothing for his needs, and bring him back to the land of Canaan safely. He makes a vow that if that happened, God would be his God, this pillar would be God's house or a place of worship, and he would return a tenth of whatever God gave him. It reveals a weak faith because it has an if-then component. He'll do as he promised only if God does as he promised. It was conditional. He didn't realize God could be relied upon to always do as he promised. Yet it was a simple request to have his physical needs met and to have the presence of God with him. This is also the second mention of a tithe before the law was given. The first was when Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth, a tithe of the spoils of war. But this is the first time a number is given. He promises to give back a tenth. It acknowledged a person's dependence on God and gratitude to him, and it was voluntarily practiced. God will bring him back and will remind him of this day, this place, and his vow. In Genesis 31:13, it says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. God would remind him of, of it again in Genesis 35:1, and he would tell his family, um, Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. And God will faithfully bring Jacob back to his land, first to Shechem, and again when he returns to Hebron to bury his father. He and his family will remain there until they go to Egypt. Scarlet Threads So what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or an application to the Gospel do we find in this chapter? God comes to Jacob in a dream of a ladder between heaven and earth with angelic beings traveling up and down on it. It is a beautiful symbol of mediation and reconciliation. It re-establishes communication broken because of the fall. Jacob is able to communicate with God. The messengers pass on errands of mercy. John Wesley says, Christ is the way all God's favors come to us and all our services go to him. So this ladder was a means of communication between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth have been separated by sin. The Lord is above, and Jacob, the object of his mercy, is beneath. The latter is a scarlet thread pointing to Jesus Christ. It points to the God-man who reunites heaven and earth. 
Matthew Henry says, we have no way of getting to heaven but by Christ. The latter was not symbolizing the commandments of God, that if we were able to keep them we would get to heaven. This latter was set down on the earth. The initiative was God's. People have attempted to gain heaven or God's favor in their own way, only to fail. Think of the Tower of Babel or Jacob's deceit. So God bridges the gap between people and himself in his own way. He is establishing a pattern of how he deals with his creation. He approaches them. Matthew Henry also says that this ladder represents the two natures of Christ. The top of the ladder is his divine nature and the bottom rung his human nature. This ladder connected the worlds of deity and humanity. John Wesley agrees and adds that the top of the ladder represents his exaltation and the bottom rung his humiliation. So Jacob saw the dream of a union between heaven and earth. Christ made it a reality. In John 1, 43-51, Jesus calls Nathanael an Israelite in whom is no deceit, unlike the first Israel, Jacob. When Jesus is comparing Nathanael to Jacob, he uses the name Israel to recall the earlier account of Jacob's ladder, which had been lowered to earth to re-establish communication with God. Jesus presents himself as the reality to which the stairway pointed. Jesus was the ladder let down from heaven to allow us to not only have a relationship with God, but an ongoing relationship because of the mediatorial work of Christ and an entrance into the presence of God himself. Through Christ, the only mediator between God and men, we have access to the Father. The ladder Jacob dreamed of is none other than Jesus himself. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So this is not on a ladder, but on him. And he here begins to use his favorite designation for himself, the Son of Man, which his hearers would have understood didn't mean he was the son of a man, like Mary's husband Joseph, but the Son of Man, which was a messianic title, first found in the book of Daniel, which says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, this person is distinguished from God the Father, who is called the Ancient of Days, and yet also has power and authority over the earth forever. Jesus said what Nathanael would witness in the fulfillment of this symbol would be far superior to Jacob's vision. He would witness the true ladder, the true communication from heaven, the true mediator between God and man, and as a believer Nathanael would be part of the true Israel, the family of believers throughout history. We need to thank God for not leaving us as we were, unable to approach him, unable to communicate with him or hear what he had to say to us. Thank him for being the ladder between heaven and earth 
so that we could approach him by faith and be welcomed into the family of God, the true Israel. In prayer, we communicate with God. In reading and hearing God's word, he communicates with us. Do we avail ourselves of this incredible privilege of communicating with the God of the universe who has loved us with an everlasting love? God promises to be with him in the land, uh, promises him the land of Canaan, which is a type of the heavenly promised land. God promises his presence will go with Jacob and his assurance that he will fulfill his word. God has also promised us, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. When Jacob wakes up from his dream, he realizes the significance of the place since God has visited him. He says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. The Lord is in his church, but many do not see it. He described Bethel as a house of God and a gate of heaven. The church is called a house of God, and it points to the gate of heaven, Jesus, through which we enter. Jacob prayed that God would meet his physical needs of food and clothing. 1 Timothy 6.8 says, But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Paul also says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. So Jacob promises God a tenth of all he gives him. So God established a tithe of 10% as a starting point for giving to support the Levites. The word tithe means tenth. They were the required gifts of the Israelites equivalent to a tax. But we must not think that that's all they gave. With all the other offerings required, it amounted to much more than that, closer to 23-35%. to 35%. Tithes could not be redeemed or taken back. In the New Covenant, they were never called tithes, but offerings or gifts. If we have received some special grace or blessing, we ought to show our thankfulness in a sacrificial offering. Now no amount is specified, as in Leviticus, but we are to be generous, not grudging in our giving. Some use the 10% as a starting point, however. The New Testament standards are stricter, or some would say higher or loftier. We give generously and sacrificially. We support the poor and ministers. What we give reflects our hearts and how we understand the blessing of God on our lives and our requirement to live as stewards of all he has given us. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Genesis chapter 29. May God bless the study of his word.